Let's open this morning to Habakkuk chapter 1. As you remember from last week, we started this Old Testament prophet, this Old Testament prophecy, this prophet wrestling with what he saw going on around him. And we began with some introductory comments, kind of getting the setting of where he was, who he was, why he had this burden to pray to God, and equally how his wrestling at the beginning created, as it were, further wrestling in his own experience. We're not going to read the entirety of the first chapter, though we will go through all of the verses. I would like to once again read the first four as we see the opening statement that Habakkuk gives as he wrestles with what is going on around him and why God has not intervened. And as we look at this passage, as we look last week at wrestling with God, this week I would like to title it, Wrestling with God's Answer. Let's start in verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear, even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save? Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Here we see this opening prayer of Habakkuk as he pours out his heart to God. Now, this is a very honest prayer as it were. This is one that I would be almost too timid to do in public myself. Uh, as I said last week, we often take our prayers almost repetitively, and that's nothing wrong with that necessarily. I think as we have the model prayer and the Sermon on the Mount where Christ gives us those words, those focuses, as it were, the principles that we should kind of focus on in our prayer life, it's not wrong to necessarily pray for the same things over and over again, but sometimes my repetitions can be empty repetitions. I can just be saying it because that's what I say. Very often it is the way in our own experience that's what happens. And at night we pray with each child. Um, I swear night routines feel like it takes three hours or the majority of the day. I, you know, I feel like we get ready, it takes three hours, we do whatever we're doing and it takes like 30 minutes and then we spend the rest of the day getting ready for bed. <laughs> that's, that's the extent of our life. You know, we're just working to just go right back to sleep. And our night routines, we typically have a child uh, we read to all three the first story for Luke. Right now we're trying to adjust having three children. They say after three, four, five, six, seven all feels the same. So I'm like, well, let's just do it, you know? <laughs> let's, four, five, six, seven, let, you know, we got the room, you know? And so it, 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 let's work on, you know, let's work on that. Let's just keep adopting, right? Well, you know, we're trying to work on our night routine now, but right now it's Luke first, read the story, then have prayer. Levi next, his story, have prayer. And then our girl, we have prayer with her and just kind of give her a little sugar. She's starting to get used to it. And when we first had prayer and we put our hands out and held hands and prayed, she pulled her hands back like, don't touch me. <laughs> what are you doing? But now she sees us and it's, you know, we teach by observation. And now she puts her hands out. She's like, yeah, I want to do this too. That's why it's so important to have children in worship, right? So they see how adults worship. Well, you know, sometimes my prayers can be very empty and vain. I'll just, you know, I'm ready. It's the end of the day. We've spent three hours finally getting everybody close to bedtime. And I know you're going to come out for an hour and a half after we get you in bed and ask for things. So let's get this show on the road. And I bow my head and I say, Lord, uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's how we kind of get it through, right? Sometimes prayer can be like that. It can be just empty and vain and just... It can be repetitive, and we don't really feel our Lord in the prayer. Even though I wouldn't necessarily feel as apt to be as blunt or honest as Habakkuk is here as he wrestles with God, as it were. 
as he embraces God, as his name has a double-edged sword where it means both to wrestle and embrace. And as he does both of these here, he's very honest. And even though I would be a little more timid, I don't know if I would say, Lord, when are you going to hear? Why aren't you hearing me? I may not be that expressive and poetic as Habakkuk is. At the same time, the honesty in this man's voice and tone is something to be replicated. He's not just sitting back and saying the same repetition, but he's equally bowing his head and saying, Lord, I I feel at wit's end. I feel like I have nothing else to do. There's nothing else I can say. There's, I have tried everything, and yet every, all the wickedness around me still exists, and everything is still happening, Lord. Why is this happening? He pours out his heart in honesty. There's a point in China when we were there for two and a half weeks where my youngest got sick. And like I've said before, children make praying individuals out of all of us. And, uh, you know, my prayer life while I was there, we were so distracted. I wasn't on a normal routine. I wasn't praying like I should have. Much to my shame, I was just kind of getting too focused on everything around me. Then all of a sudden we find out that Luke is sick, and I just go into the bathroom, sit down, and I just cry and pray. Sometimes situations make praying people out of us. And, yes, we should pray in times of prosperity. It's easy not to pray in times of prosperity. But in times when things are bad, we seem to really have this turning to God from the heart. And that's what's happening with Habakkuk. He's embracing God. He's wrestling with what's going on around him. And he looks and says, Oh, Lord. And you'll see in verse 2 where it says, Oh, Lord. He's not using the Lord's name in vain. I heard a message recently from a church where a man used the Lord's name in vain twice to describe how much he enjoyed a biscuit. That blasphemous to speak of our Lord in such terms, to use his name so lightly. I, I, I almost threw my phone across the room in anger, you know, just to think of somebody talking about our Lord like this. And Habakkuk is not saying the Lord's name in vain or just lightly, but what he's doing here is calling on his Father's name, saying, Oh, Lord. He's calling out to him from the heart. He's calling him specifically here in his covenant name because you see... Lord is not lower caps here. There's two words that the word Lord typically comes from in the Old Testament. One, just as like a Lord, King, or authority, then there is the covenant-keeping name of God, which we get the English translation of Jehovah. We don't know exactly how it's pronounced in Hebrew, and uh, scholars and theologians can try to say they do. They don't. They don't know how to pronounce it. It's just all consonant, no vowels. They respected the name of God so much in the Old Testament that they removed the vowels so there was no possible way of them actually using God's name in the wrong way. (laughs) You know, it's like, I don't want to say God's name wrong, so I'm going to remove all the vowels so I can't say his name at all. Well, what's interesting here when he says, oh Lord, he's soliciting in the mind of the readers the idea that he's not just talking to him as the sovereign, a normal Lord, but he's talking to him as the covenant-keeping God of Israel. You see, only Israel truly understood this name, and only Israel truly understood uh, who God was. And this name embodied more than just him being a Lord, but equally the Lord who made a promise with this nation. And so he looks and says, Lord, I'm calling on you in your covenant name, the one that has promised to always be with us, to never forsake us, the one who has promised to love us with an everlasting love. This God, where are you? He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and wilt thou not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. So this first portion, the first four verses that we read, that we have read, we're given the first prayer. This first chapter runs in a three-part setting where you have the prayer of Habakkuk, you have God's answer, and then you have the confusion of Habakkuk in prayer. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry? And thou wilt not hear. This is a typical feeling that we get when we don't have an immediate gratification to any prayer that may be um, given from our lips. How long shall I cry? And thou wilt not hear. Notice it doesn't just say, How long will I speak to you? How long will I ask? But the gravity of the words, How long shall I 
cry? How long am I going to cry it out, as it were? I'm crying, Lord. I feel as though you are not answering. I'm crying, I'm crying, I'm crying. I know that you've answered in the past. Why do I cry now and you do not hear me? Why is it that I am calling on you? You think, if I just say I'm talking to somebody, um, it doesn't really, you know, I, I asked them and they said no. You know, children sometimes go to a parent and the one says no and they go to the other one. You know, I'm known in my house as being the strict one and yet I'm the one that typically says yes. I don't understand that. I'm the one that lets them get away with a lot of stuff, getting sweet tea, sugars. I don't care what you want. Just go do, just, you know, just, just go govern yourself, you know. I'm the one, but somehow I'm the bad guy most of the time. I'm the disciplinarian. You know, they'll come up and ask a question. Doesn't really have that much gravity, but then when a child may, like, in anger, I want this, you know, it, it may have a little bit more, but, you know, typically you get the wrong kind of answer from a parent when you yell, right? But here it doesn't use he, how long shall I yell? How long shall I ask? But he says, how long shall I cry? How long shall I cry? This has the idea of not just yelling, but somebody crying out in pain. I don't know if there's tears involved. We can think of it in that fashion, somebody that is crying out, somebody that is at the end of themselves, and they are now crying out to God. You know, my children ask me something, I may ignore them. Y'all know we all got the obsession with the phone, and sometimes I may not hear them, and we may be looking at it and not hear them. They may yell, and I may yell back, right? We, we, you know, you, you amp up, I amp up. Let's see how this goes. And then all of a sudden, it's different, though. It is different when I hear them cry. And I don't just mean with tears. I mean the tone of their voice cry. If I hear that you're going to see daddy come downstairs, guns blazing, what's wrong with my child? If something's in between me and that child, it better watch out, right? The term cry holds a different connotation. But he says, I cry and you don't hear. Even cry unto thee, he gives the description of why he's crying. Even cry unto thee of violence and thou wilt not save. He says, what I'm crying to you about is an injustice, Lord. There's violence going around, but you will not save or deliver me. This idea of salvation holds the definition of being delivered from something. Why will you not deliver me from the violence? Why will you not take me out of the problem? Why have you not picked me up from the storm and placed me into a place where there is no storm? Why is it that there is violence around me? You haven't heard, you haven't saved. He goes further in his honest cry to God, why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and condition, uh, cont contention. Why dost thou show me iniquity? He almost looks here as he is discussing to God, saying, Lord, you could save me from this. Why dost thou show me iniquity? He, almost, he, he here acknowledges God's sovereignty over the situation. He acknowledges the fact that God could intervene and God is sovereign over what is happening. And so he looks and says, God, why are you could change the situation? Why haven't you? Why are you showing me contention? Now, that is not to say God was the cause of the violence that was around him in Israel. God was not the cause of the violence. But his heart is so broken in this prayer that he looks and says, Lord, you could save me. Why do you hide your smile from me? Why is it that I see darkness when I know that you are light? Why is it that I see rain when I know that you are the sunshine and the God of the harvest? Why is it that I see this, Lord? He says, why does, do you cause me, why do you show me iniquity? Why do you cause me to behold grievance? He says, what I see around me is iniquity and grievance. He says, spoiling and violence are before me. Strife and contention. And he says what has happened now because of this, because you see a kind of stair-step transition in his prayer, Lord, I cry you do not hear. All I see is grievance, spoiling, violence, strife, contention. He then says, therefore, because of what I see, the law is slacked and judgment doth never go forth and for the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore, wrong judgment proceedeth. So he here is giving a 
view of what's happening and what this has caused is the law to be slacked. And what that means is there's two ways here that we could view this, and I think both are applicable. One is that on a kind of a interrelational view, neighbor to neighbor, people are treating each other as they shouldn't. Uh, they're being mean, in essence. They're taking advantage of one another. We read last week of the description that Jeremiah gives of Jehoiakim's reign about how those within Israel were taking advantage of other people. The rich were taking advantage of the poor and making their riches off of the backs of those in society that couldn't defend themselves. You know, I am a, I am a freedom lover more so than most people. But freedom is never to the extent of hurting another individual, right? That's not freedom when one person takes advantage of another. And judgment in that sense was lax. Law was lax. Justice was not there. There was only injustice as it says, judgment doth never go forth. When it speaks of judgment doth never go forth, what it means is that justice is not there. There is only injustices in society. The law is slack. Neighbor to neighbor, the way people are treating each other is not right. People are making excuses for what is happening in society and making excuses for the way people treat each other, but not just in a societal, societal sense, interrelational, but equally in a judicial sense. What do I mean by that? Y'all have all saw court cases on the news over the past year, past two years, five, 10, 20, all the way back through your lifetime where you've seen a court case where you thought that is not right. Now, I understand that in certain court systems, you have to, you're innocent until proven guilty. So I understand that if you can't prove guilt, it doesn't matter how guilty they are, they're not going to be punished. So in that sense, I'm glad for that because they actually have to prove it. But there are some court cases in which there is not a trial. There was never a trial. They just get off. And we think, why in the world did that man or woman that calls those atrocities walk away without a single spot on them. There's, they, have, they have nothing against them according to the law because the judge just lets them off. And we think, why does that happen? That's the image here that we're given of what's happening in society. People are treating each other in the wrong ways and equally he says, judgment doth never go forth. There are injustices for the wicked doth compass about the righteous. The wicked is ruling society. Therefore, wrong judgment proceedeth. And for our own culture, I'll say this. Liberty can only be enjoyed so long as the society is righteous. It can't be enjoyed in a wicked society. Do you ever wonder why most unrighteous nations slowly lose their liberties? Why is that? Because when the wicked rule, the law gets more and more strenuous on them to constrain them. Liberty can only exist. Justice, judgment can only exist truly in a righteous nation. Well, he asks here, he says, you know, Lord, you don't hear me. Where are you at? He cries to them with an honest heart. He says what he sees, what is happening because of it. He tells him, Lord, I need you right now, and I don't see you. We should always be very careful what we ask of God. Because as 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us, his ears are always open to the righteous. He does hear. Now, this is kind of a, as I said earlier, a double-edged sword. Habakkuk is a book full of double-edged swords, as it were. We have a happy moment, yet at the same time, it is not just sweet, but it's bitter. It is sweet to know that God always hears our prayers. It is sweet to know that He always answers our prayers. It is sweet to know that God is forever with us, and nothing we do, nothing we say, nothing that happens is ever beyond His control. But it is equally sobering to know that God hears every prayer. <laughs> it's frightful to think that God sees and does answer. 
Sometimes I've said things in prayer that I've looked back and said, why in the world did I say that or ask for that? You know, who knows? Sometimes God answers. I've said this before. Sometimes I think there is such thing as divine humor. And I know that people have said in the past that God is without passions, as it were. Um, he's not guided by emotions like we are. He's guided by will, by his determinate counsel. But at the same time, I've sometimes wondered if there is such thing as divine humor because, you know, I'm praying for a spouse. Rebecca's praying for a spouse, and she gets me, and I get her. There's some humor in that, right? <laughs> God answered there. One, it was a blessing, and one, it was a burden. And sometimes it can be both. He says, behold. He says, behold. Pay close attention to, focus on what I'm saying, listen to what I say unto you, Habakkuk. You want to know why there's injustices and what I'm doing about it? I'm about to tell you. I am answering your inquiry. I'm telling you what you've asked. Behold, ye among the heathen and regard. Now, this is sobering because when he says, Behold, ye among the heathen and regard, He's speaking of Israelites here. The Israelites were not heathen. Heathen were us, the Gentiles. All the Gentiles, whoever it was. Caucasian, black, Chinese, uh, Japanese, Asian, Russian, all that were not Israelites were heathen. In other words, you had the nation of Israel and then the dogs outside of it. And God looks at him and says, Behold ye, heathen. He looks at the nation of Israel and says, you are acting like those who have no knowledge of me. It says, Behold, ye among the heathen and regard. Look at it, pay attention to it, regard, he says, consider it. And wonder marvelous, mar marvelously, be amazed by it. Look at it, pay attention to it, be amazed by it. For I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you. He says, I'm going to do something that you're not going to believe. This is actually quoted by Paul in Acts 13. You'll remember in Acts 13, this is when he is preaching to the Jews who reject the Christ and then goes to the Gentiles. And it says, I believe in verse 48, that all that were ordained to eternal life believed. And so he is preaching here and the Jews are rejecting the message. And he says, listen, because of your rejection, God's going to do something that you're going to be in shock about. Now, that's the way prayers are sometimes. Prayers can be shocking regardless, or I should say the answer to prayers can be sh shocking regardless of the answer. You know, sometimes I can be amazed at how God may have blessed a situation. Over the past year, we thought we were going to have to wait about a you know two years before we would ever make it to China. And we expected to still be waiting right now. We didn't expect to get paired. You know, right now the system is slowing. It's going uh, kind of slower because of the way that some of the uh, orphanages and the partnerships are going. And so we expected to wait a very long time. Well, then all of a sudden uh, we're matched and we're going to China, <laughs> you know, and we're just we're, we're heading there and we're in shock. And it's happy shock, though, right? Happy shock at what God is doing and what he has done. And it's was a blessing to us. I, I was in such shock that I didn't even pack until the night before we left. My wife had been packing from the very moment. She's like, are you going to pack? And I'm like, I'll pack sooner or later, you know, the night before I'm throwing stuff in and just get it, you know, squeeze, zip that thing. And I, I got it on the plane, right? That's what men do. We, we always wait to the last moment. Why, we, I was, we were just in shock at what God had done, what God is doing. The answer to prayers can typically be quite shocking to us, whether it's positive or negative. And sometimes we like to focus on how God does things in such miraculous ways in the positive that we forget that even what he's doing that may shock us in a negative way as it does Habakkuk is still just as marvelous. And typically you have a, again, a group that it's a blessing to, but a group that it's not. In Acts chapter 13, it was a blessing to the Gentiles that the gospel would go into them, and I would say it was a blessing to us. If not for that blessing, we would still be worshiping like pagans. We'd be making, we'd be making images and pagan temples to Thor, the god of thunder that we just love watching 
on TV. You know, he was one of the Viking gods and those Anglo-Saxons, what did they worship? They worshiped those false gods. And if not for that blessing, that was a cursing to the Jews that they couldn't believe it was happening. If it wasn't for that blessing, we wouldn't be worshiping here this morning in spirit and truth according to the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But what was one person's blessing is also somebody else's cursing. And Habakkuk is about to get told something that he's not going to believe. In verse 6, he says, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling place that are not theirs. He says, I raise up the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans is a name for the Babylonians. This is what we call the Neo-Babylonian Empire. There was an old Babylon Empire that kind of got destroyed, was still there, but taken care of and watched over by the Assyrians and Syrians and Egypt and all these other nations just came and plundered. And then you have this new one that is raising up that's called the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which we call the Chaldeans in the text. Now, there are certain names that if I told you you may not even read the Bible much, but if you just have sat in church your whole life, you're going to know certain names are bad names, right? If I say Judas, you know who Judas is. <laughs> Everybody knows who Judas is. You know, you see a lot of Luke's and Levi's and Joshua's and all sorts of biblical names. Nobody names their child Judas because you know who it is. You know, nobody, you never hear of a Jezebel, right? <laughs> I've heard of one Laodicea Primitive Baptist Church here or there sprawled out through the land, and I'm still shocked at that name. And a Corinth, you know, there are certain names you don't grab a hold of. <laughs> from the Bible because it has such a connotation with it. And when you hear the name Babylon, there's weight that comes with it, right? There's baggage. Persians, Syrians, but then the big bad boy, the Babylonians. That's who this Chaldeans were, and they were not quite there yet. This is what's interesting when he says, I will raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation which shall march through the breadth of the land. He says, I'm raising them up. It was by God's sovereignty. Now, this is not to say that God calls their wickedness. God does not cause wickedness. It is far beyond our God to sin, to call sin. He is holy. He is pure. He is good. But he is still the sovereign governor of the universe, and without him suffering them to be risen up and overthrow the Assyrians as they do and fight with the Egyptians as they do and slowly make their way around all of Israel till they're basically surrounding them. The northern kingdom has already been destroyed by uh, the Assyrians, and now this Babylonian empire is going to surround the southern kingdom. This is fearful to Habakkuk. But it should bring a little bit of comfort. Even though it's going to be something that Habakkuk struggles with in a minute, I want you to consider this point. I will raise up. At this moment, God was already raising them up. Actually, if you consider the chronology of history in the Middle East, he had already been raising them up. Sometimes we think on a very linear uh, point of view, and we don't consider the fact that God does not see like we see, and God, just because we don't see Him acting, does not mean He is not acting. We had, at one point, uh, on the plane, a, what was it, I think a 13, no, it was like a 30-something hour day, because we were going with the sun. <laughs> and it was funny, sometimes we think when it's day here, it's night there, and I, you know, I had a 30-something hour day as we're just flying, and we're going, and and we're trying to get to where we're going. And, but we think if the light's here, it's dark there. We don't see when, the light when it's dark. And we think God's not active if his smile is not on me, if the light is not shining on me, if I'm not having that 48-hour day, as I'm just standing in the sun, then God's not with me. I can't see him. I'm in darkness. God is not there. And we forget there is no place on heaven or on earth there is no place in this universe in which our God is not the sovereign governor. Amen? There is no place in which we can hide from his presence. As David said, if I make my bed in hell, lo, thou art there. God is everywhere. God is always active. God is always doing what he wants and answering prayers. God, who knew the prayer of Habakkuk before he prayed it, 
Imagine this was already working in the background, answering the prayer that he had not yet made. The beauty of the fact that our God is sovereign, even though this is something that makes Habakkuk cry out more in confusion, this first principle, I raise up the Chaldeans, the fact that God was already working. Yes, it was in punishment to the southern kingdom of Judah. Yes, it was not for their gain in a sense. But at the same time, God was already answering the prayer. Consider this. God knows the burden of your heart before you ever wrestle with that burden. God knows how much you struggle before you ever struggle. God knows every single infirmity and insecurity you will ever battle before you ever battle it and has already considered the provisions to answer your prayer. Doesn't that strengthen the desire to pray? Even though this is going to make Habakkuk hindered at first and wonder what's going on, the idea that God is always present hearing us and answering us and working His will for us, that shouldn't hinder prayer. Getting the wrong answer, or in our eyes, the wrong answer to prayer, because sometimes I think that's the wrong answer. No, God's answer is always the right answer. Even though I may think it's the wrong answer, it should energize us to go to Him further in knowing that he is working. When y'all were here for two weeks and I wasn't, he was working with y'all. When I was across the sea in a foreign land where I'm that strange-looking Caucasian everybody's trying to get pictures with, <laughs> video recording and everything else, and I'm scared to death and I'm missing home, God was there too. God is not bound by geographics. Whether in time or eternity, providence or predestination, God is not bound by geographics. With the providence of God in time or the predestinating grace of God in eternity where he purchased us for salvation because providence describes what he does in time and predestination describes what he does for us in salvation, regardless of the venue that we see, whether in time or eternity, God's got this. Amen? God's got it. And then, um, I told you that little girl talks. That just takes her a minute. Well, he gives a description of this, and this is really why he begins to fear, why Habakkuk does. They are terrible and dreadful, God says. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed from themselves. And when it says their judgment and dignity, that means they're going by whatever they want to do. Israel was guided by God and his law, or should have been. But these men go about with their own hearts. You know, people say, follow your hearts. Let it proceed from your heart. I don't want to follow my heart. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says, My heart is deceitfully wicked, desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's deceitful. Why would I want to follow my heart? God forbid that I follow that. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, fully followed their heart. <laughs> you know, I, it's, I'm following my heart. Well, bless your heart. <laughs> bless God to control and constrain because these Babylonians are fully given over to themselves. Everything they did proceeded from themselves, yet they are terrible and dreadful in their judgment. He describes here their armies. I want you to notice the three animals he uses to describe the fearfulness of this army. Because these animals aren't just picked accidentally here, inspired of God to give us a view of what these animals were, or what these armies were like, and these animals, their horses, are swifter than leopards and more fierce than the evening wolves. Leopards, wolves, and their horsemen shall spread themselves, and their horsemen shall come from far, and they shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. Three animals he gives us here to describe Babylon and their armies. Their horses are like leopards. They're fast. They're precise. They move quick, and they get you. <laughs> Secondly, they're like wolves. We go from the swiftness and the fastness of it 
to a wolf. Well, why is a wolf so important? You know, we like dogs. I have a really sweet dog. And I, the idea of a wolf or a dog now holds a different view of dogs in the Old Testament. Typically, dogs in the Bible are described as, you know, in Second Peter chapter 2, it says a dog is returned to its vomit. A dog has a different connotation in the Bible. You know, and we see a husky at the park. It looks like a wolf. It's so sweet. Our dog is the sweetest little coward you've ever met. Um, we are at the park, and a dog charges us. She hides behind me. I'm like, you worthless animal. <laughs> you go, you know. You go defend me. I'm not defending you. Take you back to Shelby County Humane Society. I wouldn't really do that, but she, she's a bit of a coward. She's sweet. We brought our girl home, and she gets on her belly and crawls to her, and she's so sweet, and you know, um, Maggie will scream, Shelby, Shelby, come. And she slaps her leg like I do because she imitates us. And that dog will run up and then she, I don't, uh, Lord, uh, y'all, look, y'all forgive me of this, but typical woman, come here. And the dog comes here and she says, no, go. I'm like, you are a lady. <laughs> you are definitely a lady. And she comes up and goes, she's the sweetest dog in the world. We have this view of wolves. It's not a pretty little cute wolf that you want to pet. This is a ravenous animal that will destroy you. An animal that is violent. More fierce than the evening wolves. A wolf that comes out at night, nocturnal, that is coming there to destroy you and take hold of you. They're swift. They're ravenous. And then it says, the horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from far. It says, they're coming from all around. They're coming from a far distant place. And they shall, the final view of their armies, they shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They're flying swift. And you think about the way an eagle is. An eagle can see you from miles away. It's swift, it's precise, and it will get its prey. He goes on to describe this army. They shall come all for violence, and their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as sand. They just bring it forth the power. They pick up another nation like it's just sand, and they shall scoff at kings. They laugh. They just scoff at them in derision. And the princes shall be a scorn unto them, and they shall deride every stronghold. They mock them, for they shall heap dust and take it. Verse 11 it's kind of confusing language, as it were. Then they shall mind, then shall his mind change. He shall pass over. This doesn't mean that he changes his mind in the sense, oh, I'm sorry, I was going to destroy your nation, now I'm not. And it's true that Nebuchadnezzar did have a change of mind. The king of Babylon did, you remember, in the book of Daniel, he proclaimed that he built his own nation, and God said, no, you didn't, boy, get down, and he cast him down grew hair like eagle's feathers and ate like a wild beast. That did happen. Um, the book of Daniel records that for us. But when it says he shall change his mind, what it's giving here is his mind changes from leniency to greater aggression. You know, oh, perk up, Habakkuk. It could get, you know, it, it could get worse. Well, guess what, Habakkuk? It's going to get worse. <laughs> Habakkuk, guess what? It's going to get bad, and then it's going to get even worse. His mind changes from just destroying your nation and taking its good to completely laying waste to it. And you can actually see this in the history of Israel. They first take their kings and make them a vassal nation. But then when there's a rebellion, they then turn around and completely destroy it and take everything. There's multiple sieges of Jerusalem, one after the other after the other. And it went from bad to worse very quickly for the nation of Israel. And notice, not only does it go bad from worse, but he imputes the power to his own God, their false God, lower G. What would be your answer to this? Lord, do you not hear me? All right, this is what I'm going to do, Habakkuk. Habakkuk goes from asking when to then asking why. Again, the honest answer of Habakkuk in prayer. Most of us would never acknowledge this. Most of us would say, no, we're better than this. We're New Testament Christians. We live by faith. I know God's got this. But how many times have we went from saying, Lord, when are you going to fix this, to then saying, Lord, why did you fix it like that? 
Lord, why did, why did it end up this way? Lord, you fixed it. You waited. I get it. But you did fix it. You did answer. Why are you going to do it like this? Habakkuk's answer is bold. It's honest. But I think it really gives a view of how we often feel. Whether in the macro view of government or our own individual lives, we often feel this way, whether it's in nations or whether it's individuals, we feel this way. And Habakkuk looks up and says, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? How would you have answered when God said this? Most of us would have probably answered, Lord, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not, I'm not having it. I'm done. I, I, you know, I was told that you couldn't act unless I gave you permission. That's a very popular theology nowadays, that God can't work in your life or your community unless you're willing for him to work through you. I will tell you something. God is the God of the universe. And if he has to conform to your will, he's not God. Amen. If he has to conform to me, allowing him to do something to me, and don't be wrong, we should submit, right? We should work at submitting every day to the will of God. And sometimes we have not because we ask not. Sometimes God does not bless a church, a community, because they're not fully following him. He told them in the book of Haggai that uh, you have bags with holes in them. Because you heap up riches for yourself. He also told, I believe it was the book of Malachi, that ye build your own houses and let the house of God lay waste. Sometimes we do have to act, right? God's not going to tie our shoes for us. We should go out and actively serve him. But at the same time, God is not constrained by my will. God is not constrained by what I want him to do. God does what he wants to do when he wants to do it, however he wants to do it. Sometimes it seems mysterious to us. But very often, we want an omnipotent God who is not sovereign. We want an all-powerful God, but we want to be sovereign. We want the God that can do anything. We watched Aladdin this past week, uh, I think about multiple times. I can quote the entire movie now. <laughs> if you don't want to rent it, just ask me, and I'll, I'll go through the whole film. <laughs> I, I can start from start to finish. I can even do the dances at the end. I know the whole movie. But, you know, sometimes we don't want the God of the Bible. We want the genie. But we have to remember, even in that movie, Aladdin, he says, what you wish for is not going to make you happy. Praise be unto God that God doesn't go by exactly what we think he should every single time. I'd hate to think if I was sovereign... What would this world look like? And, you know, I, when I look up and say, Lord, I want you to be omnipotent, but I'm the sovereign one. That's how we typically answer. I, I heard a minister recently say that he wouldn't want to worship a God that doesn't want to do what he wants him to do. I'm like, oh, ho, ho, buddy. And not among us, okay? Somebody else. How does Habakkuk answer? He goes from saying when to saying why. He starts out by saying, Lord, thou art from everlasting. He says, you are the eternal God of the Bible. O Lord, again, he looks at God as the covenant-keeping God. But now he says, O Lord, my God, you're the covenant-keeping God of Israel. You are my God. He individualizes it to himself. O Lord, not just of the masses, but you are my God, mine holy one. He asks a question in that statement. But then he says, we shall not die. What do you do when the prayer is answered in a way that you didn't expect? Go back to what you know. Go back to the fact that you know that God is an omnipotent, sovereign, everlasting, eternal being. He's made a covenant with himself to love you, to keep you to save you, to deliver you. In the final analysis, he will deliver you. He is your God, and he is the Holy One. He is apart from the sin and iniquities around us. And then remind yourself, though it gets bad, we shall not die. Now, as a nation, they were going to be destroyed, were they not? But this is the beauty of the covenant God of the Bible. Though 
We have our ups and downs, though there are moments in which it does seem that the sun is on the other side of the world, though at times it does seem as though God is very distant from us. Praise be to God, though the sun is all the way across the world, we have the blessing to know that the God who made a covenant to keep us, though he slay, it feels as though he slays us at that moment or is absent in that moment, we will not die. Why is that? O Lord, Thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, Thou hast established them for correction. He says, I, we will not die, though You have done this. He looks and says in verse 13, Thou art of pure eyes, and to behold evil, and cast not look on iniquity. Wherefore, lookest Thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest Thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? He asks this question, Lord, they're more wicked than we are. Are You holding Your tongue to them? He says, I know You're good. He starts out with, I know You're good. But then he says, I still have more questions. Why like this? They're worse than us. You know, sometimes you can see people in society that are way worse than you. And I know we're all um, wicked. None are good. No, not one, right? I know we all say that. But at the same time, there are some really bad folk in the world, right? There are people that I'm way better than in the sense of I'm not doing the things they're doing, right? You know, I'm not, I know all of us are guilty and sinful before God. But at the same time, we sometimes look out and see the injustices of the wicked and yet see them prospering and say, Lord, these wicked individuals, why is it that they prosper and yet I am slain? Yes, we're all wicked before God, but at the same time, there are some people we see and we think, Lord, why are you waiting? Why aren't you answering me? And he says, Lord, they're more wicked than us, and this wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he. And he gives this poetic description of what they're doing. <clears throat> he says, they're like men that are taking fishes from the sea and the creeping as the creeping things that have no rule over them. They take up all of them with the angle being a net. They catch them in their net and they gather them in the drag. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. He says, these wicked men are like fishermen who take a net and just cast it in the sea. They, the fish have no ability to save themselves. They're just there for the taking. Therefore they sacrifice unto the net and they rejoice. When it says they sacrifice unto the net, he says not only do they take us and destroy us, but equally they make sacrifice. And they look at their own strength and say, look at our fish. Look at our catch for today. They burn incense under their drag. They worship their own ability because by their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? He says they will empty it and then go do it again, Lord. He says, Lord, I know you're holy. I know you're good. I know ultimately we shall not die because you've promised to never leave us nor forsake us. But Lord, I'm coming back to the situation. And that's how it often is. We look at eternity. We look above the sky. We look above the sun and say, Lord, I know ultimately you are good. But we still have that question, why? I want us to look in verse 1 of the very next chapter as we end today, and we'll begin back next week seeing with God's beginning answer to him. But what is Habakkuk's plan of action? He doesn't forsake the Lord. He doesn't forsake God. Again, he's already established in his mind, God is good, God is holy, and ultimately... God is going to take care of it all. He says, I know this, but I want to understand why right now. He doesn't run. He doesn't forsake. He doesn't get so discouraged that it takes his focus away from the answer to the problems. But it says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. He says, I will still wait on God. He says, I still know that he's the only one that can answer this. And he's the only one that can really satisfy my conscience of what's going on. 
Now, outside of the God of the Bible, there is nothing that will satisfy us. You can study secular humanism and see how depressing it is to think that our existence has no meaning and we literally are born just to die. And you can even see, I believe it's Justin Peterson, who's an um, atheistic philosopher that says he tries to live like a Christian so that his life will have meaning, yet he never confesses that there is a God. And he cries in thinking, will my life have any meaning? Praise be unto God that we have the understanding that at the end of it all, our life does have meaning to the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. Start with that truth in the moment of trial to know that our life does have meaning. Our life does have meaning in the Lord God, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. We shall not die. Don't forsake it, but continue to wait for an answer from the Lord because God is going to soon answer Habakkuk and reminding him that the just shall live by faith. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this interaction that you have recorded for us in the Bible between, Lord, you and one of your wrestling servants. Gracious God, I pray that you would bless us first to have a heart of prayer that is honest before you, not disrespectful, but I pray, Lord, that you would bless us with an honest heart, a heart that is not repetitious, but, Lord, a heart that is bare, a heart that is sober, a heart that weeps before you, but a heart that continually comes to you. Gracious God, when prayers are not answered in the way that we expect or in our own timing, I pray, Lord, that we would go back to this understanding that you are Jehovah. You've made a covenant with your people, and not only with them collectively, but, Lord, individually, you are our God. You are my God, and you are holy. Lord, let us remember that ultimately we will not die. As you've told us in John chapter 15, he that believeth in your Son, we have the assurance that though we die, we shall live again, and he that believeth in you will never die. But Lord, in the moment of turmoil and trial here, we still often wonder why. Gracious God, let us adopt this mentality now that we would not forsake, but Lord, that we would again stand up above the problems in a tower, stand up and wait for your answer looking to you, knowing, Lord, that you do hear. You've worked, you will work, and you've already been working. Gracious God, when we don't understand, let us wait. In your name we pray, and amen.